Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. Hey, it's Matt here. I wanted to wish you and your loved ones a happy Thanksgiving. And even if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, and no matter where you are in the world, I wanted to let you know that I am grateful for you. It's people like you listening to the show that keep us going, that keeps us reaching out to guests and keeps us evolving to find new ways to help you grow, to motivate you, to help you live the life that you were meant to live. And that's why this week, my producer Austin and I put our heads together and came up with something a little bit special and unique. This week, we've put together a mashup of some of our favorite points made by previous guests about gratitude. This includes insights from many past guests, including Kamal Ravikant, David Desteno, Chase Hughes, and several more. Think of this as a quick one-hour masterclass on some of the best ways to embrace gratitude, learn how to find joy, and take stock of what you're really grateful for. We may even do more of these deep dive episodes in the future, so let us know what you think about it. Once again, I just wanted to say, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Keep on being amazing, and thank you so much for everything. With that, let's hear a little bit about gratitude. Are you a fan of the show, and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number four four. In our previous episode, 
we brought on Grant Cardone to give you a real look at what it means to be successful and what it really takes to get there. He shared the exact shift you have to make in order to 10x your life. We uncovered why you should ignore most people's advice, how to push yourself to a new level beyond what you even think is possible, why learning isn't enough to get to the highest levels, and much more. If you're serious about 10xing your life, listen to our previous interview with Grant Cardone. Now, for our special Thanksgiving episode. What drives people to help others as opposed to paying it back? And the kidney chain is obviously one example of this, but what happens in the world and to other people when we start to shift our approach towards paying it forward? And there's two explanations for paying it forward, what the motivations would be for doing that. One I mentioned, which is that you help me and I feel grateful for that help, but I pay it forward and I help a third person. But if you talk to economists, they'll say there's a more self-interested reason for helping, which is that I'm willing to help someone who has not helped me because I want to look good. It's all about impression management. It's all about my reputation. I'm going to appear generous. So therefore, other people will be more likely to help me in the future. Now, that's fine. And I have no problem with that. Uh, but the interesting thing is that the research on these two different motivations, being I'm going to help someone who hasn't helped me to build my reputation that will be, you know, that will make me appear as a generous person, I'll be helped in the future versus the idea of paying it forward out of gratitude. Those research has been done in two different streams. And I did a study with Nat Buckley, where we put together both of those and, and ran what we call a horse race. And we said, okay, we're going to collect a whole bunch of data. And we're going to analyze statistically, those two reasons, those two motivations, and we control for a host of other factors through all these statistical models. And so we're going to run this horse race, and we're going to see which horse crosses the line first. And I'll cut right to the finish line. It turns out that both horses cross the finish line. But the one that wins the race is the gratitude story, the idea that we pay it forward. We help people who haven't helped us because we're so grateful for all the help that we have received from other people. That's fascinating. And the work that you've done around paying it forward, and this may be, I don't know if I'm characterizing exactly correctly, but either led to or was a part of the creation or discovery of what you call a reciprocity ring. Tell me a little bit about that and what are those and how do they work? Yeah, reciprocity ring is a group level activity based on this whole principle of paying it forward. It was an activity that my wife Cheryl and I created about 20 years ago. And we were we had an interesting conversation one evening and I'll never forget it. She said, okay, you teach your MBA students how to analyze their social networks. And I said, yep, that's what I do. That's what I know how to do. And she says, well, what do you do when they ask you, how do I put this into practice? And how do I build my network appropriately? And how do I use my network? And so I said, well, I kind of have some stories and some anecdotes. And essentially, I hope the bell's going to ring and class will be over because I don't have a whole lot. And that started a whole conversation about the idea of social capital. I think about human capital as our strengths, education, skills, the kind of things that usually appear on your resume. Social capital is the network that we're involved in and all the resources that it contains. And I said, you know, social capital is a combination of the networks that we have, but also this principle of generalized reciprocity, which is the fancy academic term for paying it forward. 
And so we had a discussion about that, and one thing led to another, and we created a prototype of the reciprocity ring. And after some trial and error, really settled on a formula or recipe that really works quite well. So I could describe it uh, very briefly, and it will sound very simple, but there's a very there's a very structured way it has to be done. In fact, we train people to run a reciprocity ring because they have to follow a certain recipe. But essentially, everyone gets an opportunity to make a request, and we have criteria for what's a well-formulated request, and that's something we might talk about later on in the show. But everyone gets to make a request, but they spend most of their time helping other people meet their requests. Either they've got the answer or the resource and they could share it, or they could tap their outside network and they could make a referral or a connection. Those are the two ways that people can help. And when people do this in a group, people discover that they get help from a lot of people, but it's not the people that they helped. It's more of this indirect generalized reciprocity or paying it forward. Now, we do this in groups of about 24. I think we've over 150,000 people around the world have used the reciprocity ring. It's used in most of the major business schools, a lot of different companies. It was used recently at the Harvard Business School where they had 900 MBAs engaged in this. We had about 40 different rings running at the same time. But my favorite one, and I think that's the most moving example of a request that was fulfilled was about a little girl who lived in Romania, and her name is Christina. And Christina suffered from a condition called craniosynostosis. So you know the human skull is made up of different bones, and they're joined by sutures, these fibrous tissues. And this design allows the skull to expand as the brain and the head grow. Well, every now and then, one of those joints or sutures will fuse prematurely and then the brain can't grow, and the outcomes are awful. You can have a misshapen head, learning difficulties, blindness, seizures, even death. Well, the chances of finding a surgeon who could correct this in Romania were pretty slim, and this little girl's fate was, was up for grabs. Well, it turned out that her aunt Felicia uh, lives in France, and she works at the business school INSEAD, and they use the reciprocity ring every year for all of their incoming MBA students. And part of being trained to run a ring, that's what Felicia was going to do. She was on the staff. She had to make a personal request. And the trainer said, make sure it's meaningful, something really important. And she thought of her little niece back in Romania and made a request for her saying, describe the whole situation and said, I need help. She needs help. Turns out that someone else who was in the reciprocity ring that day, who was also being trained, he was adjunct faculty, worked at a pediatric hospital. And he said, I know surgeons who can do that operation. And I'll introduce you. One thing led to another. Christina and her family flew from Romania to France. She had the surgery. It was a complete success. And she's now living a happy and normal life. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. And that I have a picture of her that I keep on my desk to remind me of the power of asking for what you really need. And when you do, miracles can happen, just like that story with Christina. Wow. That's a really moving story and a great demonstration of the power of reciprocity rings. And it really demonstrates a point you made earlier that everybody's network, every single person's network has a tremendous amount of untapped potential, or as you called it, social capital that we're just not fully maximizing. Oh, absolutely. What I've learned over the years is that there is a wealth of resources out there just beyond your fingertips. And the only way you can get to it is by asking. And that turns out to be the, the crux of the problem. 
is that most people are very reluctant to ask for what they need. And there's a lot of reasons for it. There's eight reasons, in fact, of why it's hard to ask. And some of those are just incorrect beliefs. I can give you a couple of examples. Sometimes we don't ask because we're afraid we're going to look foolish or incompetent or that we can't do our jobs. And, you know, we don't you don't want to ask a trivial request because then that's not going to raise your you know perceptions of your competence. But what the research shows, and this was done by a team of researchers from Harvard and Wharton, they found that as long as you make a thoughtful, intelligent request, people will think you are more competent, not less. So people fear that asking is going to make them appear to be incompetent. As long as it's a good request, it's a thoughtful request, people will say, hey, you're competent. You know your limits. You don't keep you know, banging your head against the wall, working on a problem where it could be solved much more effectively and easily by reaching out to your network and getting some help from other people. Another barrier is that we often underestimate other people's willingness and ability to help by a really big factor. One of my favorite studies was done by Frank Flynn and his team when they were at uh, Columbia University, uh, and they decided to test this with a field experiment, which is they were going to send people who are participating in the study out into New York City to do this. They had to go to a stranger and ask to borrow their cell phone. And that's all they could say. They said, could I borrow your cell phone to make a call? They couldn't explain or beg or plead or come up with a sob story. Uh, That's all they could do. And it was really interesting, Matt. A number of the people who signed up for this experiment, and you get paid for doing it, for participating, when they discovered what it was about, they quit. And they said, I don't, there's no way I'm going to go do that. I'm not going to walk up to a stranger in New York and ask to borrow a cell phone. But some people did participate in this study. And before they went out, the researchers asked them, well, how many people do you think you're going to have to ask before you get a phone? And they were saying, oh, five, six, seven, ten, you know, infinite number of people. I'll never get one. Well, it turns out that you only have to ask one or two strangers now. The first person, if the first person doesn't let you use their phone, the second person probably will. And there's a lot of other studies that support that, that we often don't ask because we think no one can help us. But in fact, people have lots of resources. They have great networks and people are very willing to help, but they could only help you if you ask. So, you know, I think we've we've talked about why and kind of how self-control is so highly correlated with pretty much every positive life outcome. Let's dig a little bit now into some of these strategies. How do we develop more self-control and, you know, what are these kind of emotions that we can cultivate to have more self-control? Sure. So the three that I focus on are gratitude, compassion, and pride. But let me give you just a sense of how this works. So if what I'm saying is right, then when you're feeling, let's say, grateful, you should do better at the marshmallow test, right? You should show more self-control. So we wanted to actually put this idea to the test, but we wanted to do it with adults, not kids. And most adults don't like marshmallows, but they do like cash. And so we constructed an adult version of the marshmallow test. And, And the way this works is... People come to the lab and we had them reflect on a time they felt grateful or reflect on a time they felt happy or just tell us, you know, the events of their normal day, which is kind of a neutral control. And then we had them answer a series of 27 questions of the form. Would you rather have X dollars now or Y dollars in Z days where Y was always bigger than X and Z varied over weeks to months? So a typical question might be, would you rather have $35 now or $70 in, in three weeks? So basically, would you rather have one marshmallow now or two marshmallows later? 
And we told them to make it real. We were going to honor one of their questions. So if we pick that question, you said you wanted $35. Now we'd hand you $35. If you wanted $75 in three weeks, we'd mail you the check for $75 in three weeks. And what we found is most people were pretty impatient. So we could kind of calculate how impatient they were. And so an example is people who were feeling neutrally saw $100 in a year is worth $17 today. Or another way of saying that is if I gave them $17 right now, they'd forego getting $100 in a year. And I don't know about you, but if you don't need those $17 to survive today, passing up an opportunity to quintuple your money in a year is a pretty good, is, is a pretty dumb idea given what the banks are paying. But if we made people feel grateful, they wouldn't take that, right? They became much more patient. For them, it took them over $30 before they were willing to forego the $100. And what that translates to in marshmallows is they were much more willing to wait. They valued the future reward more than the present, or they at least discounted the value of the future reward less than most people would. And if you value a future goal more than you normally would have, you're not in a state of conflict trying to make yourself aim toward it. If you value it more, it just becomes easier to pursue it. And so we found that you know, over time, we measure people's daily levels of gratitude. People who experience more gratitude generally in their life are more future-oriented. They have more self-control. We give them these financial tasks. They want to wait for the larger reward. And other people have done the same thing with pride and compassion. And so what this means is if you begin to cultivate these emotions regularly in your life, they're kind of like a booster shot for self-control. And so we've seen, you know, compassion is tied to less procrastination, more perseverance toward your goal, whether we're talking about academics or athletics. We found that pride actually makes people persevere toward their goals, they'll spend 40% more time working to hone skills that they believe are important. And it's a way of just changing what the mind values, making it value the future, which just makes it easier to persevere toward those long-term goals. So how do you measure kind of the longer term impacts of these prosocial emotions outside of sort of an isolated lab experiment? Let's say, you know, the impact of gratitude, you know, three, six, nine months down the road. Yeah. So what we said is we, is we would follow people doing their daily lives and then give them these these financial tests. But there's lots of people who actually study this in, in organizations. So for example, there's great work out there by Adam Grant and Francesca Gino, which shows that, you know, talk about a, a environment where, where you need some level of grit. They looked at people working in, in call centers, you know, where you're basically calling people all the time who are hanging up on you and your job is to persevere through this. And what they found is that if the manager of this of a group expresses gratitude for people's efforts or expresses they anticipate that they'll feel proud of their efforts because the manager will appreciate them gratitude and pride actually significantly predict people's efforts they'll work longer and they're more successful and they're less stressed and they're happier at you know pursuing whatever their their job task is we see the same thing at at google right uh, the teams that are actually the most successful the biggest predictor isn't the technical prowess of the team, the biggest predictor of a team's success at Google is, is that team, does the manager instill a culture of empathy and compassion among the people there where the individuals who they feel that the other people in the team care about them, trust them, are interested in them as people, they're willing to work harder and they're happier and less stressed at doing it. And so what we do in the lab, we have tight control over these things to manipulate and see what they do. But the evidence from the real world showing that it increases self-control is pretty prevalent. 
So in essence, these this kind of emotional strategy is much more sustainable and powerful way of cultivating self-control. It's almost like the kind of idea of pushing versus pulling. Uh, you know, you're not constantly struggling to maintain it. It's sort of a foundation or a font within you that's kind of welling up. That's exactly right. We we talk about these these emotions as kind of, you know, fonts of virtue. That is, if you cultivate these, they're like parent virtues. They they increase lots of other things that that people admire. And you're not constantly having to remind yourself from the top down, oh, okay, I know I don't want to work, but I've got to work or, or I know I don't want to practice or I know I don't want to, you know, not eat the Ben and Jerry's. If you just feel these emotions, you don't have to remind yourself to do the right thing. They simply make you value those future goals more. And then it's just easier to persevere toward them no matter what they might be. But they also solve another problem that we're facing these days. So, you know, people talk about kind of an epidemic of, of feeling isolated or loneliness or lonely. There's a recent statistic that shows, you know, 53% of people report feeling lonely in their in their public lives and at work. And we know that loneliness is about as bad for your health as is smoking in terms of, of what it does to humans' longevity because of the constant stress people are under when they feel isolated. When you cultivate these emotions as part of your daily life, I like to say they not only give you grit, they give you grace. That is, they alter your behavior in such a way that makes you not only willing to work harder to achieve your own goals, but to invest in others and help them. And what that does is it reinforces that social side, that social network that is so important for our well-being. You know, David Brooks likes to talk about a distinction between what he calls resume virtues. Those are the the virtues that we need to get ahead at work in our careers, like being, you know, nose to the grindstone, assertive, hard charging, and eulogy virtues, those things that we want to be remembered for, things like being generous, being kind, being fair. And he laments that that these are, are, are different aspects of life and how do we balance them. And my argument is, you know, they're only different aspects of life and seem separate because of the way we live our lives now. For most of human history, there wasn't a difference. The way that you succeeded was having good character, was being generous, was being trustworthy, was being kind, because that's how you formed relationships that that allowed you to cooperate with others, whether it was in hunting and agriculture and whatever it might be. It's only now because of the way we live our lives, you can kind of succeed as an individual and get enough money to pay for your, your other needs. Um, and so if we cultivate these emotions, they build both of those virtues simultaneously. They build our self-control, but they build our social networks and our social support. There's lots of evidence showing that people who are who express gratitude, who express compassion, who express appropriately calibrated pride, and by that I mean pride in skills that they actually have and develop, not kind of egoistic, hubristic pride. We find that attractive. We want to be with those people. We want to work with those people. And so I think that's why this is a much more resilient route to kind of building success and building perseverance than the kind of nose to the grindstone willpower way. So tell me a little bit more about the evolutionary basis of these pro-social emotions. Sure. Well, you know, people people always ask me, so Dave, I want to be successful. So should I should I be a jerk or should I be, you know, a nice guy? And I say, well, what's your time frame? Because if you if you are if you are a jerk in the short term, you will rise to the top. And so there are these wonderful evolutionary models out there, some of the best done by a guy named Martin Novak, who's a professor at at, at Harvard. And what he finds is that over the short time, if short term, if you're kind of selfish and you don't cooperate with others and you don't pay back your debts and you don't help people, you'll accrue a lot of resources because you're exploiting other individuals. 
But over time, people will recognize that you're, you're kind of like this and no one will want to cooperate with you. And so you'll lose all the gains that we normally get from working with others. And so over time, it's individuals who are cooperative, who show empathy, who help others, who are fair, that, that gain the most resources. And what we know is that it's emotions like gratitude and compassion that, that push us to do these things. So for example, another study in my lab we do is we bring people into the lab and, and we make them feel grateful or we make them kind of not feel anything in, in particular. And we give them financial tasks where they can cheat others and make more money for themselves or they can split profits equally. And what we find is when people are feeling grateful, they're much more likely to choose a decision where they're going to split money equally with someone else rather than take more for themselves at the other person's expense, even though the other person won't have any chance to kind of seek vengeance on them for so doing. And so what these emotions are doing is, is they're making us behave fairly. And in essence, that's an issue of self-control. For me to behave fairly, I have to be willing to devote some resources to you in the moment and not hog them all up myself for future payoff. And so these emotions do the same thing. Same thing with compassion. You know, if I feel compassion for someone, I'm willing to give them time, money, uh, a shoulder to cry on, things that all might not be the most fun for me to do in the moment. But I do that because in the future, I know I'm going to reap those rewards back when I'm in that position. And for millennia, right, and even today, it's it's these emotions that underlie those behaviors. And what we're finding is, you know, as I said, they not only make us willing to sacrifice um, to help other people, but also our own future selves. And that's the best way to ensure that we're going to be successful down the line. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Yeah, it's so key. As soon as it becomes easy for you, you need to find kind of that next challenge and start pushing through the resistance. So going back to these five key factors that you can use to hack authority, you've got dominance, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and, and fun slash sense of adventure. T yes. Tell me about, I guess, you know, is leadership kind of encapsulated in authority as well? Or is that sort of a separate piece of the puzzle? And then what about gratitude and fun? I think those are kind of surprising things to see on a list of hacking social authority. <laughs> I think that Gratitude and self-discipline are both extremely contagious and they're both extremely visible on your body. Uh, somebody else might call it energy and I, I don't profess to know how it, it just beams out of you, but it really does. And you can tell when you meet somebody that's, that's really got their stuff together. It just shines through everything that they do. And it, it almost puts every person into kind of a followership role to where they want they want to keep experiencing that. And leadership and authority are very, very closely related. Authority is something you want people to perceive, and leadership is something that you're doing internally, the, the thought processes that you have. And what are those internal thought processes behind leadership? 
I would say the number one thing you can do is just continually ask yourself, how can I lift this person up or these people up? And the authority would be a natural uh, byproduct of having your stuff together and just managing your life. So essentially, and, and tell me if I'm mis misunderstanding this, but essentially the idea is that if you have your life together, if you're firing on all cylinders, you're having fun, you're grateful, you're, you're sort of, you have kind of positive energy beaming out from you, you know, you're organized, you're getting things done, that sort of state naturally puts people around you into a mode where, they're, where they defer to you almost or feel like they want to do what you tell them to do. Yes, and we've got a huge section in there on how to kind of hack that, for lack of a better term. And that definitely makes the agentic shift start to happen. So just as an example of this, how looks matter, they did a crosswalk, what they called the crosswalk study in Texas, and this was decades ago. It's been repeated several times. But this guy in a blue jeans and T-shirt in a downtown area, busy traffic, decides to break the crosswalk signal and just walk. Yeah, of course, the street is open like there's no cars coming. But he goes against the crosswalk signal that tells him not to go. And, a you know, a couple of people follow him. And the same guy goes back to his apartment or wherever and changes into a really nice business suit and decides to break that crosswalk and go ahead and cross the street. The chances of people following him were increased by 89% just because of his clothing. And so that was just changing your clothes or changing that guy's clothes made people break the law uh, where they otherwise wouldn't have. Fascinating. And, and that's a really good sort of crystalline demonstration of the idea that even simple shifts in the way that people perceive you can lead to massive changes in the way that they react to you and, and their behavior. Absolutely. And it's not just how they perceive you, just your clothing. You will, once you start getting that self-discipline and you've got your social skills and all this stuff start to get handled, you will walk differently. You don't need a tactic anymore. You don't need conversation starter tactics anymore. Once all of this stuff happens and once you get those five qualities kind of hammered down, everything else starts to become a byproduct. The success is a byproduct of having that stuff figured out. Well, I want to dig into how to how to create or, or manufacture your own luck. But before we do, I'm really curious if you could share maybe an example or two or a story uh, from some of the research you did around luck, because I know there's some really kind of interesting and compelling examples. Well, we had a lot of them. I mean, in terms of the, and then there's enormous consistency. So, so I think uh, the lucky people are you know, always in the right place at the right time, lots of opportunities, they always fall on their feet and so on. In terms of the unluckiest people, we had uh, one woman who had uh, five car accidents in one 50-mile journey, which she put down to her jinxed uh, green car. And then one day, we, she came to the university and we watched her trying to park the car and we realized there were a few other factors uh, in there 
And she was also unlucky in love. So she signed up with a dating agency and the first date came off his motorbike and broke his leg. Uh, the replacement date walked into a, a glass door and broke his nose. And eventually when she found someone to marry, the church they were going to get married in was, was burnt down one day before the wedding. And, and that was how her whole life had gone. That was very typical of the unlucky people. You know, everything they touched was an absolute disaster. And then on the flip side, you have these lucky people who wanted to start with a new kind of business venture and went to a party and you know, met somebody there by chance. And that person was exactly the person they needed in order to, to catapult themselves forward. And they became millionaires and so on. So very big differences uh, between the two groups. And how can somebody, for example, the woman who was consistently unlucky, how could she sort of transition or become someone who is lucky? What, what were some of the differences between her and a lucky person? Well, if we start with the differences, one was a very interesting, almost perceptual difference, actually, in, in terms of how they were seeing the world. And this was the form, the basis for an experiment we did that's then become quite well known in terms of having people look at a newspaper. So we asked people to come into the lab to flick through a newspaper and just count the number of photographs in the newspaper. It's a fairly dull thing to do. What we didn't tell them is there were two large opportunities placed in the newspaper. One was a half-page advert with massive type that said, "There are stop counting, there are 42 photographs in this newspaper. And the other was another half-page advert uh, that said, say you've seen this, tell the experimenter you've seen this and win whatever it was, £100 or something. And what was fascinating was the lucky people tended to spot those opportunities. And so they would stop and go, my goodness, that's great. You know, I don't need to count all the, uh, the photographs or can I have my prize now? The unlucky people literally turned the page and didn't see them. And that's to do with this notion of an attentional spotlight, that when we look at the world, we're not seeing everything that's in front of us. We're seeing a small part of it where, where we place our active attention. And when you become worried and anxious and concerned, as the unlucky people were, that becomes very small. You become very focused. And in doing so, you don't see something if you don't expect to see it. The lucky people uh, were far more relaxed and far more cheerful, had a larger attentional spotlight, and so more likely to see opportunities they don't expect and also act on them. So that was the type of study we were doing in order to try and tease really what was happening, why one group would say, my goodness, I get all these opportunities, and another group would say, you know, I, I never get a break. I love the newspaper uh, experiment. I think it's one of my favorite examples, and I'm so glad you shared it. And it just demonstrates really clearly that, you know, it's it's not necessarily sort of fate and random chance that's causing people to be lucky or unlucky. Obviously, there's a factor of that. But in many ways, you know, you can kind of create your own luck. Absolutely. I mean, that was the premise of the um, the research. And then what we did was to go on and, and test that and say, well, hold on a second. If we take a group of people who are not particularly lucky or unlucky – and we get them to think and behave like a lucky person, does that increase their luck? And, and that, that data uh, forms the basis of the Luck Factor book. And we found the very simple exercises. So uh, perhaps simplest one, but one of the most popular. 
and, and which is now a well-known exercise, but at the time it wasn't, which is just getting people to keep a luck diary and at the end of each day, writing down the most positive thing or positive thought that um, they've had during that day or one negative event that used to happen is no longer happening or some sense of gratitude they have for their friends or family or health or job or whatever. That starts to reorient people quite quickly. So one of the issues with um, the focusing is that if you're an unlucky person or think you are, you literally do not see the good things in your life until you start to carry out that exercise. So it's a very, very simple intervention and found it was the simplest of interventions that had the most powerful effect. But you could see dramatically over the course of a month or two, people becoming more positive, becoming luckier because of those interventions. And I'd love to to kind of dig in and, and understand how you define loving yourself, because I think it's something that, you know, I think you and I and many listeners may kind of intuitively grasp it, but I, I can definitely see somebody listening to this and thinking, you know, that seems kind of egotistical or selfish, and, and I don't <laughs> think it's that at all. You know, it's actually interesting. Uh, someone pointed that, that out to me once, and I thought about it, and I thought, okay, here's what's egotistical and selfish, hating yourself, because that's real, uh, you know, being self-absorbed, just saying negative things to yourself. That is selfish because you know what? It makes you worse and it makes your relationships worse and makes the world worse. That is the ultimate selfish thing I can do. Loving yourself actually is the most positive thing you can do because it's not narcissistic. It's not looking in the mirror and saying, I'm so beautiful, you know, and no, no, it's not like a, there's no narcissism in it. It's actually feeling love, you know, like feeling love, which is the, probably the most beautiful emotion that exists. I mean, every great song, every great poem, you know, there's a reason why over history, all this has been written about it because it is the truest emotion. So if you're going for the one true thing that really every human has within that actually, you know, love for a child, love for a parent, love for a significant other has caused such great actions in human history, you know, sacrifice. And it's, imagine sacrificing for yourself versus like always sacrificing for others. Yeah. You know, by the way, sacrifice yourself is called self-discipline, you know, which only results in good things. So for someone listening, I, you know, someone sent me an email once and said, you know, I'm skeptic about this. I'm like, dude, if you're actually taking the time to email me, means that you're not where you are in your life. Uh, otherwise, if you were, you wouldn't even be bothering. You'd be a bit too busy living your life. Why don't you just try this? Why don't you try it and see? And worst case, turns out you were right all along. You had lost nothing. You're still miserable, you know, or better, or it could actually work and you're better off. I don't really understand too much when someone says, you know, they don't get the whole love yourself thing. I'm like, you know, I think if we were ever a baby, we know what love is. We may have lost touch with it, but it's in us. And it's truly like the fundamental human emotion that ultimately we all crave and we need. And so if we start from a place of giving that to ourselves, so we're not coming from an empty place, life tends to be far, far better. And that reminds me of something else that you've talked about that I think is a really powerful concept, which is the idea that life is not happening to you, but it's happening for you. Yeah, that's actually something I've noticed with people I found to be significantly successful and happy or fulfilled. Well, I work in Silicon Valley and now because of my books, you know, the kind of people I get to meet, I, you know, I'm, I know quite a few insanely successful people, but I don't know that many successful and fulfilled or successful and consistently happy people. The ones who have that are the ones who basically everything in life is basically an experience for them to grow and learn and to use for their personal growth. So it's not like, you know, they don't get sidelined by life that when you have that attitude. It's actually, I think I came across it a few months ago. There's actually been a quote like in one of Rumi's poems, he says that. So there's nothing. This is not anything new under the sun. 
you know, these are fundamental human truths that, have, that people have been figuring out for since we've been around. But imagine like living from that place. Okay, everything that's happening is actually for your benefit. Cheryl Richardson has become a dear friend. She's a very successful self-help author. And she said to me once, I got through a breakup and I was sad about it. She said, you know, try to look at it this way. Rejection is God's protection. I thought, huh. I mean, if you think about that, because if someone and things end with someone, we as human beings don't know what's way down the road. You know, it could be magical now. It could be the worst thing ever happened to you 10 years from now, right? So if it ended now, it could actually be a great gift. So if you start looking at is everything is happening for my benefit from that place, it makes life a lot simpler and actually makes us happier. You know, call it a simple mental hack. It works. Yeah, that's so powerful. I love that phrase. Rejection is God's protection. I think in many times looking back on my life, there's so many things that I desperately wanted or wished would happen. And the yeah. fact that they didn't happen was the best thing that could have happened to me. Yeah. I mean, like, look, I was writing for over a decade obsessively, you know, teaching myself, reading the great authors at night after work and on the weekends, just writing, rewriting, you know, sending out material, getting rejection letters and the rejections hurt. I remember I would be depressed for a week or two Then I would think, OK, I'm going to be a better writer and I'm going to work harder than next round and get more rejection letters. But you know what that gave me was over a decade, I became a way better writer because of that. That allowed me to be the kind of writer who could write love yourself and take his ego out of the way and just write only every word that matter, cut everything else out. If I hadn't gotten those rejections for a decade, I couldn't have written Love Yourself. I would have written like, if I had gotten like published early on, I'd be writing just really clever drivel. You know, it's very easy to write clever stuff. I mean, I do it all the time and I then I throw it in the trash, you know, because I know now how to write from, you know, pure from the heart. But that took a lot of time and a lot of work to get to that place. That was all because of the rejections. You touched on earlier kind of the difference or the distinction between someone who's successful and someone who is fulfilled. Could you explain that distinction? I was making this distinction, someone who's successful and someone who's successful and fulfilled, you know, Got fulfilled, it. right? And so I was like, what is the couple of things I've noticed with them? One of the key things is their attitude tends to be that everything that's happening is actually for their benefit. They work it out. You know, they'll handle it. They'll figure it out. They'll be in a better place because of it. Now, success and fulfillment, I mean, I think in that case, I think fulfillment for me is when you're really living your life in a way that your life is an expression of you, the true you, what you're putting out in the world, the way you're being, you know, just if you're walking the earth being you and putting out to the world the real you, that is natural fulfillment. It's actually a beautiful way to be. Now having success from that place is even more amazing. You know, you'll never have any issues with that success because it's just you being you, the real you, not the ego, not the scared person, but just you, like the gifts you got, putting them out. So like I would say like of all the things I've done, you know, startups, building companies, venture capital, all these things, the thing that I found most fulfilling, even though it's also the hardest work I've done, is writing and putting these books out. It is by far the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life. It blows everything else away, you know, because it's a pure expression of me. One of the things you've talked about is the idea that if something scares you, there's magic on the other side. <laughs> yeah. I'd love um, for you to kind of explain that. That's just a rule I developed for myself. It's just a personal rule and one that whenever I live just results in magic. Like, for example... I was terrified of putting the love yourself out to the world. I was petrified, you know, and, and I wrote it. And I remember just being like, I was just as likely to just trash it than I was to, to publish it. Right. And it was actually crossing that fear that actually changed my life, transformed my life. And I've noticed that in other things, if there's like, we're really scared, you know, okay. If you're scared of, you know, throwing yourself in front of a truck, yes, that's a legitimate fear. 
But like most of our fears that come from within, they're actually, I think, often a signal of where to go rather than where to run away from. It's kind of funny how that works. I think in our gut, we've learned to like listen to in a very weird way as humans, where like this fear of going asking that girl out, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You know, eventually you could actually meet me in a girl of your dreams. Or like publishing a book where I'm going to be a laughing stock in my in Silicon Valley. Everybody's going like, what the hell, dude? You're writing this book about loving yourself with this with this strange cover and now you're doing like mantras in your head. I thought I would never be able to raise a dime for a company again, you know, but by doing it, it changed my life. And like so many CEOs I've met, like tell me how it's transformed their lives and made them better. That was a huge thing. So it's almost like I look at life as a cliff. Life, you know, these things in life, is it's a cliff you're standing on and we're waiting to jump. And we think, you know, we're going to jump when there's, after our wings grow. The irony is they never will. We have to actually jump and serve along the way while we're falling is when they grow. Because it's like life tests us. Like, I think life gives us more than we could ever ask for, but we have to step up. It's just life that requires us more of us. And I think that's fine. I think that's a fine deal. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Success.